And the rest of us, if you would, you can turn to Revelation chapter 2. We are going through a study in the book of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ. And um, as we have been discussing this, we uh, began two weeks ago talking about the outline of the book. And, um, and that in verse 19 of chapter 1, that Christ himself gave us an outline of what he was going to present through John. And that was that he was going to present the things that have been, the things that are, and the things that will be, or the things that will take place after this. And in that, there are three messages. There was, first of all, that message to John. Then there's, in the things that are, is the, thing, is the messages that will be to the churches. And then for the things that will be, is the message of the future. Today, we transition from the things that were to the things that are. And so we want to talk about the message to the churches. I've got a new little toy, so hopefully we won't have as many problems with this. I'm sure I'll hit the wrong button. But anyways... We'll see how it goes. But in then, the message of the churches, there are seven churches that Jesus Christ speaks to. And in chapter 1, we saw when Christ first came to John, he told John that he had a message to these churches. And these churches are all located in what was known as Asia Minor. Today is known as Turkey. And so they were all uh, together in a, in a small area of land. They were all Gentile churches, if you would. But they were churches that really had a mixed population. They were Jews and Gentiles, but they were predominantly in Gentile area. And so it was, the first is to the church of Ephesus, then there's the church of Smyrna, then Pergamos, then Thyatira, then Sardis, and then Philadelphia, and then finally with the Laodicea. And so we will be looking at each of these churches, though we won't look at each of them individually today because of all these preliminary comments we're going to be making. Um, I decided to go with just Ephesus today. But next week... Lord willing, we'll go with um, either Smyrna and Pergamos or Smyrna, Pergamos and Thyatira. So we'll, we'll do this in three to four weeks um, going through the churches that are here. Um, today, though, we are going to be looking at the church of Ephesus. Oh, and before we do that, right, I want to do my, my background, my preliminaries here. Now, as we go to these churches, this is important because, again, as we come into segments of Revelation where there is much debate, I don't do this a lot on some of the, the doctrine things we go through, but I want to present the different ways of interpretation. Because I've said straight out coming in here, the best way that you're going to know prophecy is one. After it happens. And there are a variety of opinions as we come into the book of Revelation. I can't claim that I have 100% everything down pat. Um, I'm sure that I'll be surprised at some point. Maybe just one or two minuscule points. But anyways, I'll, I'll probably be surprised like everybody else will be. I think there's going to be some who are going to be very surprised. I don't think I'll be a surprise, but I'm sure they don't think they're going to be a surprise, and they think I'm going to be very surprised, but that's okay. Now, as we go into the seven churches, there are three basic ways that people look at these seven churches, of what, what they have to do. First of all, some believe that the seven churches are seven literal historical churches that actually existed. The prophecies concerning them have already been fulfilled, that Jesus was actually talking to seven churches of Asia Minor, and that these messages were for them. The application of the messages, though, apply to us today and throughout the churches throughout history. Secondly, there are those who believe that the seven churches are representative of churches that will exist in the end age, at the, end, the latter days, the, the latter times, the end of the age. So they believe that if we are in the end times right now, 
that there are seven distinct types of churches that are there. And that, for example, we would be one of those type of churches. We would be the, the church of Ephesus. We would be the church of Smyrna. We would be the, the church of Thyatira. We would be the church of um, per, Pergamos, then Thyatira. Um, Sardis, Philadelphia, or Laodicea. One of those describes us. And so they really didn't apply to seven churches back then. They really are looking forward to seven churches that will be here in the end times. And they say that because Jesus does say to each one of these churches, or to most of the churches, that he's going to come to them. He's going to come to them shortly. And so they, they see that as um, evidence that these are end time churches. Third is that these, uh, these seven churches represent seven consecutive eras of church history. And so that they actually represent a different part of church history throughout the ages. That view first started around the 1300s, at least that's the first time that it's recorded, around 1300s. It was a Roman Catholic priest who started it, and it started taking on its shape, and clearly at that time they thought that they were where? They were the end, okay? And so when the Reformation period happened, they were sure of it, and so during the Reformation period they thought they were in the Laodicean church period. Now clearly... We know from hindsight what? They weren't. And so, but this, this view has continued to be propagated now. Although the Roman Catholic Church at that time got rid of it, some of the reformers coming from that background took it and ran with it. It has been popularized in our day by a guy named Schofield. You ever heard the Schofield reference edition? Okay. I don't agree with a whole lot. That, that's, I agree with some things that Schofield puts out, but not, not everything um, that Schofield puts out. And so... But that has been popularized as well at this time, that these represent seven ages. Which of these three do you think Bob adheres to? Number one. Yeah. Those who said number one, you win, the, you win the prize. Okay, so I don't think that it refers to seven end-time churches. It's amazing that the ones that you see really hold to this are ones who like to claim to be the Church of Philadelphia or the Church of Smyrna, you know, the ones that Christ said good things about. Not too many people are out there claiming that they're the church of Ephesus. Or, or they're the church of Laodicea. Yes, come to us. We are the church of Laodicea. We're the lukewarm church. <laughs> you know, or come to us. We're the church of Ephesus. We work hard, but we've lost our first love. <laughs> so everybody wants to say that they're, they're the good churches. And so it's amazing. And as well in that, it tends to be then churches who want to also declare that they have a special message beyond that, okay? So, beware of that. Um, now, I mean, because clearly, note in number one where I said that the application of these messages apply to us today. So, I do in a sense think that there are that churches today can be described by these seven descriptions. Does that make sense? And theoretically, hopefully not, but probably at times some churches can be described by all seven of them at different times of their, of their existence. Number three, um, again, as I said before, tends to be held um, by those who want to become, in our day today, ultra-dispensationalists. Now, I don't want to go into dispensationalism right now. We may start talking about that in a couple weeks from now as we start looking at prophecy as a whole. But dispensationalism, just in a nutshell, says that God has worked throughout times in different ways. Different, uh, he's given different responsibilities people and has a different um, obligations for them to hold to. Okay? So for example breaking it down very simply you can say there's Israel and the church. Okay? 
Some people just want to break down to the two. You break down to three. There's the, the time before Israel, the time of Israel, the time after Israel. Okay? And you can go on and on and on. There are potentially some hold to seven, very strictly seven dispensations. Some will hold to ten dispensations. But those who are very strongly in the dispensational field, who are ultra-dispensationalists, they'd like to break everything down in dispensations, see this as God's way of declaring the dispensations of time in the church age. And so they'll look at each one of these and say that that's that. The problem with that is that, again, as history has gone on, guess what? The periods have what? Continually changed or been adjusted because, well, it couldn't have been the Laodicean period. So clearly we're in a Laodicean period, and so since this is the Laodicean period, then the time before this must have been the Philadelphian period. Well, if the Philadelphian period was back in the 1600s, how can it be in the 1800s? Anyways, so... If I get to heaven and I find out that, yes, in fact, God did figuratively put an illustration in, in his word um, using those seven churches to describe the ages, I'll be excited about it. However, for me, again, as I've said before, the primary rule of thumb when it comes to interpreting the word of God is to interpret it literally. I take God for what he said. I don't try to, to, to turn it around and say, well, it means this because I think this. That's the wisdom of man, not the wisdom of God. And so I take the wisdom of God, and unless God gives me something to tell me that this is a figurative statement, that I'm going to take him literally at his word. So Jesus said he wanted John to write a message to seven particular churches where John literally actually had lived prior to being banished to the Isle of Patmos. John actually lived in the city of Ephesus prior to being banished. And so he had a ministry in Asia Minor prior to being banished. And so I believe that God is using John to write a message back to the churches that he had a ministry to. And so that he gives them a literal message. So that's where I think that we're at. That's where we're going with this. If you, um, if you like to give a little credence to two or three, that's between you and the Lord and that's okay. Okay? But from my perspective, the literal interpretation, number one, is it, that there are seven literal historical churches that these prophecies that Christ is giving them are regarding them specifically, but the application of the message we should take heed to, because it does apply to us today, okay, both as a church and individually. Now, we want to talk about, then, the letter to the church of Ephesus. Now, as we look at the letter to the church of Ephesus, uh, Steve read that earlier, and we have been memorizing uh, the larger segment of it as our memory verses for this month. And so in this we see that Christ speaks to the church of Ephesus um, in four different segments. First of all, he introduces himself. Secondly, he commends, gives them a commendation, commends them. Then he gives them a challenge. And then he gives them a promise. So first of all, his introduction. How does Christ introduce himself? First he says, he is the one who holds the seven stars. Now, what is that in reference to? That I'm Thus, thus saith he who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Seven churches. Survey says, it's not the seven churches. Look a couple verses before that in chapter 1. I think it's around verse 20 or 21. It must be 20 since there's only 20, 20 verses. The seven stars are what? The seven angels. Or, remember we said that this word is not angel, it's really the word angelos, which means what? messenger. And so, again, I want to challenge you to put in the proper words, okay? Not because I want to change the scripture, 
but because I think we need to understand what he's saying. Jesus is having John send this through the messengers of the church. Clearly, again, there were people coming to what? Visit John. And so he's sending this message through these messengers. Um, now, what's exciting about this is that Jesus says he is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. What's the picture? He's protecting them. He's holding them. He's, he's controlling them. He's, he is, if you would, take the, the protection, the control side of it, put it all wrapped together. He owns them. He owns them. He protects them. He didn't say protection, but the protection is there. No, wait, did we say that protection? We did, okay. Um, I, I think it was a thing of provision. But anyways, he is the one who is the one that's holding them. I picture Jesus talking about the Father, saying to us that the Father holds us in his, his hand. He's the good shepherd. Remember, we're talking about the good shepherd? And no one can snatch us from his hand. Isn't, this is exciting stuff. So this talks about the ownership of Christ. Now, I think that those messengers are reflective, representative of the churches. Okay? And so I think that there's an ownership of the church. But I do want to go applicationally to, to literally what he's saying as well. I think these messengers were ones who were going to be ones who communicated, if you would, going back. They were going to communicate God's message to these churches. And I think what he's saying as well is that they, as messengers, literally, are in his hand. James 3.1 says, Be not many masters, or teachers, if you would. Such have the greater condemnation, or judgment. And so, God ultimately, Christ ultimately, has ownership over the teaching, or should have ownership over the messages and the teaching that go on in the church. Because he has the ownership over the church himself. Secondly, we're told, not only is he the one who holds the seven stars in his hands, he's the one who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Now, what's the seven golden candlesticks? The churches. There we go. The candlesticks are representative, reflective of the churches. Okay? Now, what do you think it means that he walks in the midst of the seven churches? Or in the midst of the golden candlesticks? He dwells with them. His presence is with them. Give me a, give me a, a, a nice... Theological Christian word we'd put in there. Omnipresent. He, well, yeah, omnipresent, but I, I, I see this as more personal. He's omnipresent anyway. He doesn't have to be in the midst of them. I think it's fellowship. I think there's fellowship. I think he's, he's showing the fellowship that he has with them, that he is actually in their midst. He's walking with them. He is there. You know, so many times we pray for God, God's presence to be with us. Do you know how erroneous that really is? Now, I mean, I know what we're saying, okay? We want to sense his presence. But in his, will God ever leave you or forsake you? No, he said so. And so the fact is, is Jesus present with us today? Yes. yes. Now, I'm assuming that we're saved and we're two or three are gathered. Christ is in our midst, okay? And so he is here. He is in our midst. God is present. There, I believe that there's a war going on. I believe there's, there's demons that are fighting against and everything. There's that war behind in the spiritual realm going on. But... God is in our midst. This is an encouragement to the church of Ephesus. He's getting ready to, in a moment, nail them. Okay? And he's giving them a sense of encouragement right off the bat. And that is, you're mine. You're mine. I own you. And I love you. 
I want to have this fellowship with you. That's why I'm there with you. I am walking in your midst. If there's ever a lack of fellowship between you and God, whose fault is it? My fault. No, it's not my fault. Your fault. Anyways, but yes. <laughs> but it's our fault. It's not God's fault. God won't leave us nor forsake us. So, Christ's introduction, he's the one who holds the seven stars. He's also the one who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks that shows fellowship. Now, Christ's commendation to them. Now, I, I love this part. And honestly, I wish that he would have stopped after this part. We all would have. If you, would have, if you could pick it for, for an epitaph to be written by Christ on your tombstone, what would you like? Well, for, for the church of Ephesus, he said what? I know your labor. The word labor actually means to, to, to toil. To, not just, it's, um, it's, it's to work. It's the word ergon. You know, it's where we get the ergs from you know, when we talk about units of work. It's, but it means to toil, to work, to labor. Okay? And he says, I know your labor. And to, to the um, church of the Thessalonians, the Thessaloniki, um, Paul says, he says, your labor of love. But no, Jesus doesn't say to them, I know your labor of love. This is important. He tells them, I know your labor. I know that you work hard. Can I put it in our, our dirt? Deeds, 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 deeds. You're doing, 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 doing. I know it. I know your deeds. I mean, as a whole, that sounds pretty positive. Secondly, he says, I know your long-suffering or your patience. Now, that's a, a wonderful thing. That's part of the fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? You know, he says, you're long-suffering, you're patient. The sad thing is, we don't know exactly how he means this. I think I'm going to pull back in a few moments from now on this, okay? Because of something else we're going to look at. But keep in your mind that Paul, in writing to the Corinthians in chapter 5, says that the Corinthians were glorifying themselves, though he doesn't use the word patience and long-suffering, they were really glorifying themselves in their patience and long-suffering, in that they were allowing a man who was living with his father's wife to go on without being punished, without being um, disciplined by the church. And so Paul says, listen, I'm telling you this in the spirit. You know, I was there. You need to hand him over to Satan so his flesh will be destroyed, but his soul will be saved. And so you're glorying in the fact that you're putting up with this. You're patient. I think this is really the, the, the term that's being used here, okay? And so put that on your, in, your, in your memory bank. We'll come back to that in a moment. But Jesus says, I know your patience, okay? I mean, patience by itself is a positive attribute. I know your desire for what? Personal purity. Well, how do I get that? Because he says here in um, verse, verse 3, um, I'm sorry, verse 2, he says that you, have, that you cannot bear those who are evil. Those who are evil or those who are bad. Okay? Again, we live in a day of relative truth. Right? What is evil? Give me some, somebody give me a definition of what is kakos. Something that's bad, evil, wicked. Huh? Murder. Murder. Okay, you're, you're giving me an illustration. Good. Okay, anybody want to define it? That which is not good. Good. Okay, there we go. That which is not. So something that's evil, wicked, or, or bad is something that's not good. Okay? 
So if I ask everybody in the, in, in the world today, they would probably give me something similar to that as a definition, right? And so now I say, give me an illustration of that, okay? And then I turn around and I say, and so everybody will have a good illustration, and probably somebody would say mass murderer, a mass murderer, and everybody would agree, you know, if I go out there and I said, is, is somebody who's a mass murderer good or evil? I think that I would probably have a good chance of getting 100%. I'd say 99.9%. There's always that one individual, right? Anyways, who would say, oh, that's evil. That's not good. But then as I came down our list of cardinal and venial type sins, our, our designations of seriousness of sin, you're going to find a point where all of a sudden there's going to be a disagreement to what is what? Evil and what is... Well, okay, it's not evil, it's not bad. Well, the reality is, if it's not bad, it's... No, no, if it's not bad, it's good. Get it? If it's not evil, it's, it's good. Okay? To God, there's no, nothing in between. Jesus told his disciples, he says, listen... If any man comes to me and he doesn't hate his father and his mother, he has no part with me. Now, does God really want you to hate your mom and your dad? No. But in contrast to your love for him, it ought to look like you hate them. If someone comes to me, I use this illustration in the past, but if somebody comes to me and puts a, a, a gun to my, my, my children's head, I'll pick on Matt because he's sitting in front of me, they put, a, they put a, a, a rifle to Matt's head, and they say to me, deny Christ, or I'm pulling the trigger. I'm going to look at him and say, I love you, son. And I know where you're going. I'll see you on the other side. Now, according to the world standard, I must have what? I must have hated him. I'm not willing to deny Christ just for a moment to save him. But no, my love for Christ has got to be greater than my love for him. Even though I love him, to their way of thinking, I must have hated him. There is no middle ground. And so we like to have the middle grounds, the shady areas, the gray areas of what is good and what is evil. God doesn't have gray areas. They're not these things that are, well, they're not really evil, but they're not really good. No, it's good and evil. So, Jesus tells them, I know that you all can't stand those who are evil. And so they have a desire for personal purity. Would you say the same thing was true about Pharisees? But what did Jesus call the Pharisees? Whitewashed sepulchers. He called them, um, oh, I called them a bunch of names. My mind's blanking on me. But whitewashed sepulchers, hypocrites, uh, brood of vipers. I mean, yeah, I mean, he just, he railed the Pharisees. If there was one group that Jesus was, came out against, he didn't really worry about the Sadducees a whole lot. The Sadducees were the liberals. I mean, they just didn't believe anything. They didn't believe in a heaven anyway. They didn't believe in a resurrection. He wasn't, didn't really nail them. He nailed us. If we lived back then, more than likely, we would have been of the sect of the Pharisees. We believe in the literalness of the Word of God. We, we hold the Bible teaching is very strong, so today. We believe in the resurrection, and so today. Okay? So, be careful when you look back at the Pharisees and pick on them too much, because, really, that's us. Okay? And so he says, I know you desire for personal purity. So far, it sounds good. I know your labor. I know your patience. I know your desire for personal purity. I know your desire for doctrinal purity. He says that you have tested those who said that they're apostles in what? They're not. He says, they, they, they said, they declared themselves to be official messengers, 
But they're not. You found them to be what? Liars. And so you have a desire for doctrinal purity. Now again, this is positive. This is really good. Okay? And even if the, the, the negative um, motivational side of this isn't there, that I'm putting in there, okay? Even if it's not. So get rid of that for a moment. This is a great list, isn't it? I mean, wouldn't you like Jesus to talk about you like this? I know your labor. I know your patience. I know your desire for personal purity. I know your desire for doctrinal purity. I know your perseverance. Look what he continues on saying in in chapter 2. Verse 3. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Galatians chapter 6 tells us not to become weary in well-doing. And so he says, I know these things about you. I know that you've done these things. But then he goes on the next verse, doesn't he? And he gives him the challenge. And what's the challenge? Well, there is an accusation that's made. And the accusation is, you left your first love. You left your first love. Now the word first there means your priority love, if you would. It doesn't mean just first cardinally. It, it, can, it can mean that way. But it really means in light of priority and, and emphasis. Jesus said in Matthew 22, there was a young man who came up to him and said, Teacher, what is the first and greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, You shall, worship the, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But the first and greatest, the one that has the greatest priority and the greatest emphasis and the greatest motivation of my life is what? Loving God. Before anything else, I need to love God. And God comes to them and he says, listen, you labor. That's a wonderful thing. You've done works. You've done deeds. You may have gone out feeding the poor. That's a wonderful thing. You've had great patience. You've loved covering a multitude of sin. You've bared up with people's burdens. You have sought personal purity. You have sought doctrinal purity, to be pure doctrinally. You have been pers- you have been you've persevered, you've been steadfast. But know what he says? But it ain't good enough. It's all meaningless. God doesn't want your works. He doesn't care if you're a doer. He wants you to be a beer. (coughs) Do you know the difference? God doesn't want your externals. He wants your internal. There's a lot of people out there who are very moral. A lot of people out there who are doing a lot of good things. And it makes it really hard to be discerning of where they're at. Because only God is really the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. But that's who the Word of God is. Who is the Word of God? Jesus Christ. But we're told in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, that the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it is a, it is a divider of the soul and the spirit, of the bones and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I believe Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 isn't just talking about scripture. 
I think it's talking about Jesus, is coming out of the Sabbath rest, and that Jesus is our Sabbath rest, and then he turns around and talks about the, the, the Word of God. And we're told here in the book of Revelation, um, a little bit later we'll see this in, in the churches, letter to the churches, it is he who has the sword, the double-edged sword, that comes out of his mouth. God himself is the one who's going to discern my heart and your heart. And he's going to determine whether the things that you're doing are really for him or really for you. And if they're not for him, then they're for you. And if they're for you, they're trash. Isn't that awful? It's nothing. It's meaningless. You might as well not even done them. Now, you know what I'm saying? You know, it's nice for, to be nice. But if you're doing it because thinking you're raising up eternal treasures in heaven, you're not. Phyllis? You have your reward right here. You have your reward here on the earth. That's exactly right. Why are you doing it? Jesus himself lays an accusation to this church. Now understand, it's not to the individuals. It's to the church. So he's talking to us. And as I said before, how many churches today want to raise up the banner and say, Hey, we're the church of Ephesus. We've lost our first love. Come join us. We'll work ourselves to hell. It doesn't work that way, does it? But you know what the encouragement side of that is? Go back to what, how Jesus introduced himself. How did he introduce himself? He holds them. And he walks among them. He's stating right up front, I know you're what? No, wait. I know you're a true church. Do you get it? If they weren't a true church, then they couldn't have what? Left their first love. You get it? Because they would never have the first love. But somewhere along the line, they got distracted. And they started to focus on themselves and what they were doing more than focusing on God. Listen, I understand. I've seen it in my lifetime. I've been a part of it. I've pastored a church where I think that actually we lost our first love. That we got distracted. <coughs> can I pick on a certain segment of you guys? Because I'm one of them, so I can pick. pick. Homeschoolers. You have got to be careful because so many times it's easy for us as homeschoolers to take our eyes off of everything else and off of God and put them where? On our own family. And that our family can actually take away our first love. And so I want this, you to, to struggle with that one. It's something I, I struggle with, and so I want to make that application as here. As a church then, as a whole, in that same light, okay, we tend to be reclusive. Okay, we tend to be looking inward in our own family, if you would. And so as a church, we, in a sense, believe in homeschooling, right? We don't, I don't, you know, in other words, we don't, you don't come here and we don't send you off to different places to be taught. Most of your teaching is done where? It's done here. We may bring things in to assist in the teaching, but the teaching is done here. 
Now, maybe some of the brothers and sisters teaching it, and maybe, you know, what, however it happens. And so I think the same concept, we can become very seclusive in our thoughts and our thinking. And we need to be careful that our eyes don't come off of Jesus Christ and come on us. Now, to the accusation, Jesus gives the admonition that they need to, first of all, remember. Now, I want you to, to go back in your mind numerous months ago to when we went through 2 Corinthians chapter 7, or 1 Corinthians chapter 7, when uh, where it refers to God's conversation with Samuel, or Solomon, when Solomon was done building the temple. Do you remember? And Solomon was done building the temple, and he was consecrating the temple, right? And many of you can quote this passage. It says, if my people who are called by my name shall what? shall humble themselves and what? Pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will heal the land. Okay? Now, throughout the Old Testament, we're told the same thing. That when Israel went astray, the first thing that they had to do was what? Remember. They had to remember what? What did I say? Did I say Corinthians? Chronicles. Yes, I'm sorry. Second Chronicles. Thank you. Second Chronicles. Yes. That throughout Israel, they had to remember. And so what God is saying, listen, when my people are out there, and, and they're out in the lands, and they've been doing their wicked stuff, and I've turned my face from them, in a sense. I haven't left them. I've just turned my face from them. Because they've turned away from me. And they what? They remember. They, they, they're in the midst of their pigsty, like the... Uh, prodigal son, and they remember, gee, what am I doing here? My father, and my father's, I mean, my father's servants live better than I'm living, and so they remember, and then when they remember, they respond to the remembrance, and they what? Repent. When they change the way they think, and they turn from their wicked ways, and come back to me. Then I will hear, and I will heal. Well, Jesus says the same thing. Remember from whence you have fallen. Do you remember what it felt like? No, I'm gonna, feelings are deceptive. Okay. Do you remember, though, what it felt like when you were first saved? Do you remember the peace? Do you remember the tingles? Do you remember the fun, the joy there was? remember the excitement? I mean... You're a child of the king, and you want to tell everybody about it. It's kind of like when you're first engaged. You were excited about the girl. You wanted to show it to everybody. But then that day came when you got married. And the excitement was gone. <laughs> now she's not your girl. She's your wife. I know. She knows. But I, I say this a lot. <laughs> yeah, okay. You shouldn't be there. But it happens so many times. We lose focus because of complacency. And we need to be careful. And that's what Jesus is coming and telling the church of Ephesus. Remember. Remember. Go back in your mind and remember what you had. Where you were. 
I remember sitting in St. Louis in an apartment by myself. My family wasn't with me yet during Desert Storm time. That was my Desert Storm duty was in St. Louis in a nice furnished three-bedroom apartment off a stocked pond. Anyways, it was rough war duty. Somebody had to do it. Anyways, yeah. So while I was there, though, it was a, it was a, a time of spiritual renewal for me. I was ready to cash in the chips on, on, my, on my spiritual life. Ministry was going to be gone. Family was going to be gone. I wanted to walk away from my family. Everything. I was just, I wanted to leave it all. And I cried out to God when I was in Augusta. God, you got to get me out of here. My life's destroyed. I was just burnt out. Just, it was just gone. A week and a half later, the Army called, wanted me to Desert Storm duty. I'm there. Two and a half weeks later from that prayer, I was in St. Louis. And I remember in March of 92, praying and crying out to God, God, I remember the joy of my salvation. I remember what it was like. I just don't know how to get back there. And I remember crying my eyes out numerous times. And this, I'm just telling you a story. This is for real stuff. I was crushed. And that's the worst place to be, is when you remember. You know what it was like. But now you're sitting here eating with the pigs. And you can't remember the way back home. But Jesus says you got to remember. And you got to turn back. you got to change the way you think. It's the first step. Change the way you think. Repent. Repent. Regain that first love. And while I was there that day, sitting in that, that apartment. God slapped me upside the head. And he told me, I told you that years ago, soon after you were saved. I said, what? I know, you're thinking, God's talking to himself. No. There was a conversation happening. And, and he said, what was the first message I ever gave you? And I remember, soon after I was saved, the zeal fire, the joy that was there. And I remember Pastor Woody wanting me to preach. I wanted to go to seminary. I wanted to serve him. I wanted to plant churches. I wanted to go back up in the north because clearly I didn't hear the message up there. Somebody had to go up and tell those pagans up there that, that Jesus was God. And, um, and so I wanted to, wanted to go. And, and so Woody wanted me to, 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 to preach. And we were meeting in a cafeteria back then. It was, that church was, was being planted and new. And, um, and I remember that these people have been saved for 10,000 years being there thinking that, man, what am I going to tell these people? I mean, they've been saved longer than I've been alive. And, and I remember praying, God, what do you want me to teach these people? And I remember giving me a message called Prima. Some of you have heard it. Some of you have been there. And it was, if you want to be the best in your life, you need to be Prima. Prima is Italian for the best, the top. First of all, you need to pray. First part of any communication, first part of any relationship, is communication. Pray. Prayer is communication with God in worship. If you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, then God is your Abba. He has given you the privilege of having a relationship with Him. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the sons, the children of God. Do you get it? That the God who created the heavens and the earth, everything that there is, 
go far beyond. I mean, you got Voyager going out there trying to explore strange new worlds. It'll never get to the end. And God's beyond it. Do you know how big Jupiter is in our sky? Like the, the point of a pen? And do you know how big Jupiter is compared to the Earth? About 50 times the size of the Earth? Could you imagine being on Voyager, looking back at the Earth? What would you see? Nothing. And where are you? You're nothing on a nothing. And yet God loves you and says, you can call me Abba. He gives us a spirit by which we call him Abba, Father. Abba is the Aramaic word which means Daddy. My kids love to talk to me. Sometimes too much. Anyways. And I joke about it. You've heard the joke. I mean, when we first taken him, Andrew was just chomping at the bit to go hunting. And I've taken him out once or twice to go squirrel hunting, just a little thing. You know. But when he turns eight, he knows when he turns eight. Every time I go deer hunting, he's going to go. He doesn't get a gun until he's 12, and only after he's memorized a bunch of verses and proved the will to obey. But for four years, he's got to go with me. And he's got to learn what it means to sit quietly and to, and to respect the gun. But I know that when he first goes, he's not. We remember the first instance, don't we? When we had more deer than I've ever seen in my life come through my area. <laughs> and I watched them run away. <laughs> Dad, there's a deer! <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> but you know what? I don't care! Because it's all about the what? The relationship. The communication that's there. Do you want to talk to Dad? That's the first step. How many of you, don't put up your hands, I'm asking this rhetorical question, put up your hand in your heart. How many of you got this morning this, and, and, and had time with Dad? He was sitting in the study, in the living room, in the library, wherever it is in your home, in the closet, just waiting to spend time with you. How many of you got up to do it? Pour yourself a cup of coffee, maybe. Went into the den and sat down with Dad. And talk for a while. And ask Dad for wisdom. You know, I mean, there's difficult times going on. And you said, Dad, what should I do? I mean, isn't, I mean, don't we do that sometimes? We pick up the phone, and all of a sudden, we realize later on in life, we want to talk to Mom or talk to Dad, because maybe they do have a little more wisdom than I do. Anyways, and so, for some reason, I want to talk to him. Do you know what? My Abba has a whole lot more wisdom than my earthly father. R is to read. To read God's word. That's how God speaks to us a lot. Now he can speak to me. And I believe he does. I, I don't go to that charismatic, full charismatic route. And I'm going to give you things that are beyond the word of God. But there's a relationship between them. But reading. Reading God's word. If you go back to warfare. Our first two targets. Whenever we attack a country. Is the communication lines. And the supply line. Do you know what Satan loves to attack first? In, in, in your relationship with Jesus Christ? The communication line? That's prayer. And your supply line? That's the Word of God. If He can get you out of time with Him and get you out of His Word, you're toast. He, he doesn't even have to worry about you. You're not effective for the kingdom. 
because you lost your first love. And everything you do is meaningless anyway. Read God's Word. We're told in 1 Peter chapter 2 that if we've tasted of the grace of God, then as newborn babes, we are to desire the sincere milk of God's Word that we can grow by it. Jesus said you must be born again. You need to be born of the water and of the Spirit. As a child naturally desires to eat when he's born, so those of us who have been born again, born of the Spirit, should naturally want to read God's Word, to be fed. But we ought to want to go beyond that, and the eye is investigate. You can put the word interrogate. The word investigate. Investigate the word. It's to study it. It's to work hard. Why do you believe what you believe? Don't tell me because your pastor said so. I'm your pastor. I'm not good enough to rely on. Tell me because God said so. Why do you believe that Jesus is God? Bob's pretty convincing when he comes to Isaiah 40 to 48. I don't care. Do you know Isaiah 40 to 48? It was a great testimony last week when Laura shared about Kristen going toe-to-toe with the Jehovah Witnesses. I loved it! I mean, there was no greater joy for me to, to hear that I've been able to be used by God to, tr- to teach and to train and equip people to be able to stand for the truth of God's Word. And even a teenager. Who people wouldn't have expected that she knew anything. She's even blonde. I mean, <laughs> so, I know, I get myself in a lot of trouble. That's exciting. I mean, you know what I'm saying? That, that, that testimony was probably the, one of the shortest testimonies there was, but it was, it's so exciting for me. It's very exciting for me. But do you know? It's amazing to me when I do this, I teach this little session in, in a water conference as well about Prima. How many people don't know why they believe what they believe? And they're, they're teaching kids. You ought to know why you believe what you believe. Investigate the Word of God. Second Peter, Second Peter, Second Timothy 2.15. Anybody quote it? Study to show yourself approved unto God. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. <coughs> Study to show yourself approved <coughs> to God. Not your brothers, but to God. M. Memorize and meditate. Memorize and meditate God's word. That's why we have the monthly uh, scripture memory verses. To encourage you to have a pattern of memory. Not because this is all you need to do. I encourage you to memorize God's word. You can do it. Don't say you can't do it. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be our God and Father. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You can do it if you want to do it. But you have to put forth the time. It has to be your desire. It has to be your love. Do you get it? That's where the love begins. Because I love God. I want to know what He says, and I want to apply it to my life, and I want to have His wisdom. And the only way I'm going to have that is by spending time with Him and learning His Word. And you know what happens after I spend time with Him in communication? It's called prayer. And then I read his word, and I investigate it, and I memorize it, and meditate upon it. A is going to happen. And that's apply it. Too many of us want to apply it before we know him. And that's the people of Ephesus. That's the church of Ephesus. They're the ones who want to do it before they are it. God doesn't want you to do. He wants you to be. He wants your heart. Remember, repent.
Now the approbation, a big word, but it's a great word. It means the official show of approval. Because Christ comes down now in his official capacity, and he kind of softens the blow just a little bit. And he says to them what? But this you have. In other words, you got this in your favor. You know, it's nothing else. You got this in your favor. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, quickly, who are the Nicolaitans? I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. But there is confusion about this, and I want to, I want to deal with this. Do you know that the only place that we know of anything of the Nicolaitans is from the two verses here in Revelation? In one statement by the church historian Irenaeus, who lived back then. There are a lot of theories about the Nicolaitans. I read them. It's mind-boggling. I mean, you start to go through and the wisdom of man stuff, right? So here we go. Who are the Nicolaitans? Well, clearly, they're followers of who? Nicholas. Nicholas. They're, they're followers of Nicholas. Well, the, the, word, the term Nicholas comes from two Greek words. Nikos and Laos. Okay? Which, Laos, if you think of the country Laos, it's spelled exactly like that. L-A-O-S. Okay? Well, Nikos, Nikos, is what? Victors. Victors in Christ. It's victory. Okay? Nike. You know, Nike shoes? It's the Greek goddess for victory. Okay? That's what... So when you wear those Nike shoes, you're actually wearing the, the shoe of the Greek goddess. Anyways. So... Um, I don't want to go there anyways, but <laughs> just, that's what it means. So, but it means victory, okay? It means victory or to conquer, to be a conqueror or victor, okay? Laos, laos is the word for laity or people, just people. And so it means conqueror or people, a ruler over people. And so clearly this Nicholas was the one who was a ruler. Now, I'm not telling you I believe this, okay? I'm telling you this is the line, Okay? You can write it down, but understand that this is a, that, that clearly this is demonstrative of of the the church leadership, people who have taken church power and church leadership, and um, you know the deacons and the pastors, and they they have no right to have that power, and so they're um, and so Jesus is coming down, and that's actually the, what caused them to lose their first love is that they have their eyes upon the church leaders rather than on Jesus Christ. Again, I don't get that from this. I mean, I don't. I mean, I think Jesus was very clear what he said to them: "You lost your first love." Okay. And if they were really hating the deeds of the leaders, then they wouldn't have lost their first love. If that was the problem, is it just? It doesn't make sense, literally, to put that in there. Okay. So there's a group that says that, and, and you you find out that they tend to be what anti-authoritarian. They don't want to have any leadership at all, they just want to have the body. And so then they just exist without any leadership. Um, and so, but the second group like to come back and they say, Nicholas! Oh! Well there was a Nicholas back in Acts chapter 6. He was a deacon. And so they were followers of Nicholas who was a proselyte from Antioch. Now think Greek for a moment. Okay? You live in Greece. And you're naming your child. What is a good Greek name? Nicholas. A, a ruler of people. I mean, Alexander, Nicholas, Philip. There are a lot of classic 
Greek names. Okay? And so, to say that this guy here, when he's writing to Ephesus, was the same guy who was from Antioch, living in Jerusalem, is a stretch. Could it be? Yes, of course it could be. Is it? I don't know. Now, the only other piece of information we get here, we know that the, the, the deeds of the Nicolaitans, okay, and we don't really know a lot from Revelation, is from Irenaeus. And this is where I said that we're going to come back to some of this in a moment, okay? Because I think this applies as well. Irenaeus, who says that the Nicolaitans were very wanton. They, they, um, they gave themselves over to their, their personal desires. Okay? Sensual desires. And so, um, it, it makes sense, coming from the book of Romans as well, where Paul says, as he's pre- preaching grace, that he says, listen, I don't say all this so that you can sin that what? Grace may abound. In other words, we think, I'm grace, grace, grace. I can what? I can do whatever I want to because I can't lose my salvation because this is all to do with God and not to do with me. So now that I'm saved, once saved, always saved, so therefore I can do whatever I want to do. Okay? Well, that's the concept of what's going on here. I don't know what all they did. All I know is that they basically were antinomian, which is against, without law, they were self-pleasured. I see that a lot in our culture, in our Christian culture today. We want to know where the line is so that I, what I can do with and still be okay, rather than having our eyes focus on God saying, how close to God can I be and still be in the world? Years ago, I heard a great illustration on um, Focus on the Family. And he had the, the, the guy that, he was assistant chief of police of Los Angeles during the days of the, the L.A. riots years ago. And he was a believer, and he attended um, Grace Community Church out there. And he said that his son came home from college one day, and he says, Dad, I got the problem with Christianity all figured out. Gee, son, great. Let me know. People have been meditating on this for thousands of years. And he says, well, see, Dad, it's like this. The world is, you know, the, the Christians are, are seeking to maintain this, this separation from the world. They want to be, you know, holy, and they want to be separate from the world. The problem is that the world is steadily going down, becoming increasingly wicked. And because we have our eyes on the world, seeking not to be conformed to the world and being separate from the world, we're just thinking, using them as the standard, and we're just trying to be above that standard. Rather than having our eyes focused on God, whose standard never changes. And so if our eyes are focused on God, then as the world gets increasingly wicked and darker, then our light should be increasingly brighter. And so Paul says to the Philippians, he says, do all things without murmuring and disputing that you may be blameless and harmless as sons of God without rebuke amongst, among whom you shine as lights in the world in, a, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding forth the word of life. So, I don't know who the Nicolaitans are. I just know that from what is told that their deeds are evil and that Jesus commends them at the end. He gives them this great... Um, official commendation and says, approbation and says, you, you're okay. From this perspective, you got this for you. And then finally, he gives them a promise. And I love this promise because a similar promise is given to each of the churches. In verse 7 he says, and this is so Jesus, isn't it? I mean, isn't it what he said in the midst of all of his parables? If you go back to Matthew 13 some point and you read all the parables, it's almost at the end of every one of his parables. 
He who has an ear, let him what? Hear. If you have an ear, let him hear. Let him hear what? What the Spirit's saying. If you have an ear to hear, then listen. Listen to what the Spirit, and he says here, to the churches. To him who what? Overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, I want you to hear the promise, because in the promise there's a little problem. But it's not a problem. If you listen to it, you can, you can hear a potential problem. To him who what? Overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life. Which means if you don't what? Overcome, you can't what? Which is really what? Eternal life. Okay? So, that means if you don't overcome, you don't have eternal life. And that means that you really can't be sure of your eternal life, can you? Christ is the overcomer. And in 1 John 5, it says that this is what overcomes the world, even your faith. And what is being stated here, again, and we talked about this as we went through 1 John, as we went through Titus, and we went through these others, when we went through the, the study of the Bible, as we did our little um, uh, survey of the Bible. If you are true, if you are really His, then you ultimately will persevere. You will endure. You will overcome. Hebrews chapter 3 is very clear that those who are in fellowship with Christ will persevere to the end. If you don't, it only reveals that it was never about God. It was always about you. That is a tough statement. I'm not making it. God's making it. Because I know His Word is true, and He tells me that if you believe, if you really believe in Him, you have eternal life. Not that you'll get eternal life, but that you have it. But if you really earnestly are not in your heart, if you've never believed in your heart the Lord Jesus, not just with your mind, you may intellectually give assent to Him, but if it's not here, it's a different story. Something that's here won't go away. You're committed. I am dyed in the wool black and gold. Some of you understand that. You ask why you're wearing black and purple. Why am I wearing black and purple, Rodney? It's for the funeral. Anyways. It's for the funeral. Anyways. Anyways, that's right. I'm a Steelers fan. It's not going to go away. I mean, it's just there. You know, I mean, I, I mean, when I get to heaven and I find out that God has everything decked out with black and gold, I mean, I'm, it's just going to be awesome. So anyways, but seriously, but do you understand? It's something that's in my heart. It's something that's in my, my being. It's in my nature. It's where I grew up. It's, it's there. Some of you sports fans, you understand this. There really are such things as Detroit Lions fans out there. Huh? What? Really? And you know, this is the year that you'll know who a true Detroit Lion fan is. Now, those who don't understand, they went 0-16 this year. First time a team ever did that. This is not the year that you want to be wearing your Lions shirts. Okay? But those, those who are really Detroit Lion fans, they're wearing their shirts. Do you get it? They're not ashamed to be called by the name. You'll know if you're really real when the persecution comes. I believe, as we go through this, we'll see this in the next month and a half, we're going to go through a period of persecution in our land. I really do believe that. 
a period of cleansing and purification. And those who are his will stand. And those who aren't his, that it's all been just social, cultural, just a, a sham, it'll be revealed. Now, some may stumble, but in the end, they'll persevere. Balthasar Hubmeyer. It's a household name, isn't it? Just talking about it this morning, weren't you? Anyways, Balthasar Hubmeyer was during the days of the Reformation. He was an Anabaptist. That means he was baptized again. And he went around preaching salvation in Christ by faith. He was persecuted, if you would, three times by the Catholic Church. Now, I'm not picking on Roman Catholics. There were more Anabaptist, Anabaptistic individuals who died by the hands of the Lutherans than they did by the hands of the Catholics. Okay? So, I'm an equal opportunity spreader of that flame. And, but, and we're not a Baptist church, so there we go. So, anyways, but Balthar Mahmar was arrested and he was put on the rack. And they said, recant or die. And so, you know what he did? He recanted. And they let him go. And you know what he did? He started preaching the gospel again. And they were arrested again. They put him on a rack. And they said, recant or die. And you know what he did? He recanted. You know what he did then? He went back out and started preaching the gospel again. Guess what happened again? Talk about cycles, right? He was arrested. And he was put on the rack. And they said, recant or die. Guess what happened this time? He said, I can't do this. My God has never recanted about me. I can't recant on him. And he died. Now, if he would have continued to recant, it would have said something. But he finally made a stand. So hear what I'm saying. I can't, I don't know your heart, and you don't know mine. But where are you in the love process with God? What is your greatest love? Is it a sports team? Is it a food? Is it a house? Is it a car? What are you willing to give up everything else for? That's your greatest love. Believer, have you lost your first love? Have you been distracted? Have you become apathetic, complacent in your relationship with Jesus Christ? If you want to be primo, you've got to do primo. Pray, read investigate, memorize, and then apply. How would, you how would Christ describe your life if he was writing the epitaph on your tomb now? What would he say about you? And then to us as a, as a church, how would Christ describe us as a whole? And is he still the primary love for our church? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace and mercy. I thank you that you are a God who desires a relationship not puppets. You are a God who desires loving loyalty, not just vocal loyalty. And you are one who gives it. You died for me. And I am so grateful for that. Forgive me, Lord for my apathy, and for my complacency. Forgive me for when my loyalties are divided. Help me, Lord, to be fully 
committed to you. I thank you that you'll never leave me nor forsake me. And that you've promised that in the days of struggle, you'll give me the strength. You'll give me the words to speak. Because it'll be all about you and not about me. And that as they looked at Peter and James and John, all they could say is that they had been with Jesus. Lord, I pray that that testimony would be about us as well. And that you would help us as a body to glorify you, to be focused on you. Not upon numbers, not upon a facility, not upon individuals within the the body, but God, that we would desire to be true worshipers who would worship you in spirit and in truth, who would love you with all of our heart, collectively, all of our souls, collectively, and all of our minds, collectively. Be magnified, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn in our hymnals to 434. Revive us again. Revive us again. Stand together. 434. Oh God, for the Son of Thy love, for Jesus. 